Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I am your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we're doing something a little different. I'm joined by Priya Parker, the author of The Art of Gathering. She's a facilitator and an expert on getting together. And we talk a lot today about how we can gather in more meaningful ways during this time of coronavirus. We also talk about her beautiful book and her brand new podcast called Together Apart, which also looks into specific gatherings during COVID-19. Everything we talk about today can be found in the link in the show notes. Shopping through those links can earn the stacks a small commission at no cost to you. Plus, shopping through bookshop.org helps support your local bookstores. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Priya Parker. All right, everybody. I am here with Priya Parker. She is the author of The Art of Gathering. Priya, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled. I have actually read your book twice because I think it's so amazing and just so (laughs) well done. Um, I love your book. But for people who haven't read it yet or who are curious about what you do, can you tell us a little bit about the book in about 30 seconds or less? Thank you. Yes. Um, So the book really looks at why some gatherings take off and are transformative and meaningful and memorable and others don't. And I am a conflict resolution facilitator. I'm not an events planner um, or have a background in any type of the um, kind of accoutrements that are typically associated with gathering. And I wrote this book in part to look at all, to expand our notion of what a gathering is from dinner party to town halls court proceedings, weddings, funerals, work meetings, and to actually look at the core of how people come together, why they do it, and how anybody can make it meaningful, regardless of who you are. You're good at that. You're good at explaining your book. I really like that. <laughs> I feel like you've done it did before. I, did, I, did I do it okay? Was that, does that match your uh, your experience? It was actually better than my experience. You were able to articulate it much better than I could have. Um, but one of the things that I think is really special about your book is that you really have a flushed out philosophy about how to gather some rules, some some rules that we should be putting in place, some ideas, some important things to remember. Like, you know, you if you include everybody, then you're not really having a meaningful gathering and involves exclusion or setting ground rules or letting go of etiquette or inviting in conflict. Like there's all these little tidbits that you present to the reader. And my question is, did you have all of that philosophy already in place and you were able to just write it down? Or was the process of writing this book kind of taking what you know and actually getting it on paper? Great question. This book, the, the DNA of this book is a combination of a facilitator's manual and what I think the best nonfiction is, which is voyeurism <laughs> into other worlds. And the you know there you know my my training is as a facilitator i i still to this day even though i've you know written this book i think of myself my primary identity as a as a group facilitator even more than a writer um and i and and so there's elements in this book that are the core of my training for the last 20 years which mm. is the training of facilitation and so ideas like um like simply know your know your purpose is there a need Right. Is there a need for this gathering or are we just doing it, you know, out of obligation Um, is an idea from the core of my work, which is a process called sustained dialogue, which is a group process when people are in conflict of whether or not you bring them together after a riot or 
um, uh, race with college on college campuses. And my, my, my mentor, Hal Saunders would always first ask, like, is there a need, mm-hmm. right? The first phase of sustained dialogue is not getting people into the room. The first phase of sustained dialogue is called deciding to engage. And it's this entire process to actually do a diagnosis of is the best thing in this situation to bring together a dialogue group or does it need something completely different? And so when I say know the purpose of your dinner party (laughs) or know the purpose of your work meeting or know why you're bringing together your family, what what is it this year at your family reunion that you most want to use it for? The, the, the kind of the, the intellectual inheritance comes from multiple fields. But you know, my, my husband's a writer. And one of the things that he said to me when I, when I was trying to figure out whether, you know, whether and how to do this was, he said, you know, there are plenty of facilitator manuals and no one except you reads them. Right. <laughs> um, right? Or unless you're, you're like insider's insider, you know, these kind of geeky, like badly formatted very good, you know, facilitator manuals. And he said, no one wants to read that unless you're a facilitator. What people want to read is they want to have an excuse to sit on their couch and to go into 42 different worlds. Mm. So if you're going to write this book, like write down, and I, I, I have it in one of my files, write down the 40 things you know most to be true about your, about, about group dynamics, mm. put them in your language, build out each idea, write it. Some of these are half-baked ideas you know, some of these are inherited ideas and some of these you're going to have to figure out through your experience and then go into 40 different worlds that none of us have time or access to go into and tell us what a dominatrix thinks about shadow work and power in a gathering. And, and so he said, you carry the story. The story should carry the idea. Yeah. Well, that was really good advice because I feel like that is definitely what makes this book so resonant is that I felt like I was able to experience other people's gatherings and take ideas from a gathering that I would never attend. You know, I, I host a podcast and I'm a fitness instructor, so I'm not really going to a meeting <laughs> of these powerful people at, you know, at the edge of the world deciding about, con- you know, conflict and all this stuff. Like that's just not in my wheelhouse, but I was able to take some of that advice and bring it to my dinner parties, you know, that I have for my friends. And so I think that that's fun because you've really you've encompassed a lot of different things. And I think for anyone, everyone gathers, everyone is in charge of a gathering at one point or another in their life. And I feel like you've given us a lot of different ways of looking at our gathering and something's bound to hit for, I think, everybody who picks up this book. So I think that, I think that was great advice from your husband. He's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. And well executed by you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I mean, you know, even part of, because, you know, because this is a books podcast, I it's it's rare for me to actually kind of geek out and talk about the um, you know how how I structured it. But I think one of the things that I tried to find, well, I would say two different things. One is a lot of different types of gatherings that hit different notes and appeal to different types of people, right? And so gathering, I think, is a um, has been boxed into the feminine, and I think it's right. actually a, a deeply integrated. I think it's masculine and feminine. I think it's power and love. I think it's efficiency and productivity and power and impact, but I also think it's nurturing and belonging and community and love. Mm. But if you, which is why I have the New York Times page one meeting and I analyze that and I analyze court proceedings in Red Hook and I, and I spend time with Platon, the photographer and ask him how he gets, you know, Putin to, to give him the face that he wants in this, in his portrait, even if he only has 12 minutes with him. But then I also go into all of the everyday gatherings that most of us experience. And that, so that's one, which is the type of gathering I tried to pick from public to private and, and everything in between, uh, work, home. But the second thing I tried to do was both go into these kind of fantastical gatherings like a Cirque du Soleil choreographer, mm. Michelle Laprie, or um, like even, even just out of the ordinary, the end of, end of life, you know, Buddhist monks, mm-hmm. um, who might spend, spend an hour with a thousand doctors, helping them create the experience of how do you create and, and nurture people through end of life experiences. But then I also tried to bring in the everyday, like my stepsister is about to come over and in three minutes, let me scramble and actually set the table right. or, um, or that same choreographer. I think it's easy to I think it's easy to say this is a specialized skill that other people with either fancy houses or fancy degrees or really high emotional intelligence can do but that's not for me. 
And mm. I wanted to break open that belief because I deeply believe anybody can gather well, which is why when I interviewed the Circus Soleil choreographer, I spent you know three hours on the phone with him describing the intricacies of how he created his last Circus Soleil um, time show. And, and then at the very end of the interview, I said, can you just tell me like, this is, this is beautiful and sophisticated and some of those amazing work in the world, but most of us are never going to do that. Can you just tell me like how you hosted your last gathering? Like your own, you, do you see your friends? <laughs> what, what does that look like? And that's the only part of the interview that made it into the book. And what he said was, and it's the Christmas story. He said, I, 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 it was the end of the year. I hadn't seen my friends. I was feeling really disjointed. I hadn't even put up a tree yet. And so I, I, I shot off an email to 12 friends. I said, I haven't seen you forever. Come next week. Send me two photos of happiness from the last year um, and come for a tree dressing. And they walk in and he had just printed out on his home printer like 24 photos of their moments of happiness. There was ornaments and cocktails waiting for them and they decorated the tree together. But it was through the very simple move of asking them to send their two moments of happiness. It became this bonding device. You know, oh my gosh, George, what, you know, you're in an acrobat suit. What beautiful legs you have. Or wow, you sold your house this year. Or oh my gosh, where was that scuba diving trip? Right. And so it was, you don't need to be a circus choreographer to be able to ask people to send you two photos of happiness and print them out and put them on a table when people walk in. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of the examples are really simple things that anyone can do in a lot of the cases. And I think, again, that is what makes the book work for so many different people is that it's it's easy stuff. You just have to kind of be thoughtful and open. Um, one of the things that I am very impressed with by you, and I know that you've been doing this work for years and years, so I think some of it comes with practice, but I'm curious what advice you might have for people who are trying to well, let me rephrase this. One of the things that you do in the book that's so great is that you tell us when people have issues with their gathering, they can't quite figure out what's going on. And you kind of come in and you give them this great advice or you notice there's a tension in the group and no one's talking about it. And you decide to do a cage match or these all these little problem solving things that you do as the facilitator and the person who's hosting the gathering. What advice might you have for the listeners about how they can be open and receptive to the dynamics of their gathering? How can people kind of figure out what their group needs? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is really complicated to figure <laughs> out what a group needs in the moment. Right. Right. Which is why half the book, the first four chapters, first five chapters, don't even talk about people in the room yet. Right. Right. It goes actually back to that deciding, deciding to engage phase. And the best way to figure out what a group needs is well before anyone enters the room. <laughs> um, so, and what I mean by that is, say, for example, um, one of the big ideas in this book is um, that a gathering starts at the moment of discovery. The, the, and then the moment of discovery means the moment that the guest receives some form of invitation for this future promised event. There's going to be a conference on rural America next week. There's going to be a yoga, the public yoga session for the neighborhood in the park at noon on Saturday, my birthday party is in two weeks. Won't you come, right? There's this future promised event. Right. And you are actually hosting your guests from the moment of that in, uh, invitation all the way up to the moment that they enter the, 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 the door. And the best way to actually hold a group and have it be great in their moment is ahead of time, tell them what the need and purpose is for this gathering and get them in the mood for it mm. and let them to actually say yes or no, right? So it's like, it's a, it's coups happen or overthrows happen in in gatherings, usually because of something that has or hasn't happened before anyone entered the room. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So I want to talk about your new podcast called Together Apart. It's by the New York Times and you're a producer and the host of this show. And it's fantastic. It's brand new. Um, as of recording, I believe there's only two episodes. But I want to talk about you know, gathering in this time of coronavirus, because I think that A, it's on everybody's mind. And B, I think that it's really challenging. So my first question around that is how did you approach the idea of gathering when you realized what was going on, when you realized people were going to be gathering apart and they were going to be Zooming each other or relying on FaceTime? Like how did your changing, what was your change or thought process? Mm -hmm. So we have been working on this show for over a year, uh, this original show, not Together Apart. We had a show, we had a podcast that has been in the works called, called Gathering with Freya mm -hmm. Parker 
it was sort of a it was like the little inside uh, inside tip. It's called it was a it was sort of a gathering makeover show. Okay. Um, we and we looked at all different types of gatherings, real people's lives, calling us, me coaching them, and then our producers going into their gatherings and live, you know, recording the actual gathering. We had brides going in and auto, you know, taking, oh my God. hitting the voice memo on their weddings to like record certain parts and, um, and it was probably I saw a tweet. I can't remember. It was probably early March, but it was the night that the NBA can't like canceled the yes, season. It was a Wednesday night, and you know, and, and I'd been watching the South by Southwest conversation and watching these kind of very large gatherings on gather and debate what to do. And and you know, it's funny. I you you I've never I don't you know the word gathering has obviously spiked in a crazy way. Mm. The, you know, I can I can no longer have a Google alert for the word gathering, for right. example. <laughs> and um, and I looked at what was happening, and I also noticed that the emails I was getting um from from clients. You know, my day job is still as a group conflict resolution facilitator, mm-hmm. helping people have conversations that they need to have that are going to affect the future of a political movement or the the future of a company. Or, but the emails I was starting to get is like very practical. Can, can we move this thing online? Right? Can you? Your the core of your work is honest, transformative, healthy conflict. Do you think we can do that online? To very personal ones. My, we were going to do. We were going to have our wedding. Do we cancel it? Do we postpone it? We, you know, I'm a teacher. How do I do? How do I create the connection you're talking about over Zoom? Right. And I saw the writing on the wall and I talked to my producers and I said, um, look, like uh, uh, this show on gatherings is not going to work in part because we just very simply, it was first logistical. We can't get tape. If people aren't gathering, we can't get right. tape. Right, right, of course. <laughs> and um, and then uh, you'll see an influential theme here. My husband, mm-hmm. you know, was over over meals and I was telling him the kind of emails I was getting and he said, why don't you pivot? It's still the same principles. You're still like, you're, you're still, you still core at the core of what you do is you still understand group dynamics. And what I realized, the, like as a group facilitator, what I know how to do is help people find meaningful connection and overcome the obstacles to that connection. Right. And my training is in race and ethnicity and identity. In this case, all of that is still true, but now the core obstacle becomes physical, right? And technological. Um, and so we pivoted and a producer texted me. I some of the text, he said, um, you know, a show about gathering now sounds like a horror flick. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. Yeah. So we pivoted and, you know, about a, three days we sent um, my production company is called Magnificent Noise and it's in partnership with the New York Times. And we all had a meeting and they said, go for it. And so what was supposed to be a show that was sort of beautifully and solely produced over a year and then you know, dropped over six weeks. Once everything had been finalized, you can work with a character for three months or four months. They plan a wedding. You talk to them in March. They have their wedding in October. You send tape in October. Then, you know, the the entire episode is like beautifully done. We're now producing a weekly show live week to week, live meaning whatever happens that week, right, is the next week's episode. Right. Um, And so very simply together apart is a show that explores how people right now are thinking about and actually hosting their gatherings to, to, together apart, um, virtually or through social distance you know, gatherings. We take one character per episode whose gathering or future gathering has been upended by coronavirus, a canceled wedding um, of you know, 40, the 40th year of a Passover Seder of 35 people who've been coming for 40 years together, you know, again and again, not being able to actually do it in person. A 17-year-old high school senior whose poem's been canceled, whose graduation's been canceled, and she's about to turn 18. And her older sister, you know, feels awful that she can't even have an 18th birthday party. And every episode explores one person's gathering. It's a it's a coaching call with me. Um, but it but we take the gathering as I do in the book to explore. We use you know birthdays to explore. Is it okay to still celebrate right now? We use birthdays to explore questions like, can you still change even if you're in place? What does it mean to create a transition ritual for an 18-year-old if she feels stuck at home, right? What does it mean for all of us to, are we still changing and growing even if we're physically can't leave our house? Um, Where are we in the tunnel? And so like, like a good book, we're taking every episode as a vessel 
of a specific gathering in a specific world, baby showers, schools, graduations, funerals, and going into the life of somebody, but then also exploring these underlying gathering questions about groups and power and identity and transition and ritual. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's really, it's a really great show. I'm, I comes out on Wednesday and so does this podcast. And I'm, I sometimes have been listening to that before I listen to my own show. Wow. What an honor. <laughs> it's just really, I mean, it's really great. I just really love it. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So here's a really, I think this is something that I have been struggling with myself. So I'm going to ask you for a little personal advice, but how can we, you know, as we do these Zoom gatherings, right? And like, we feel that we're together, but we're really not. And I'm sure everyone has someone in their community that maybe lives alone or is maybe, you know, kind of feeling more distant than normal, or you can kind of get a sense that that person maybe is disengaging. How can we reach out? and connect with those people who are more in the fringes of our friends or family circles and who are feeling lonely and sad? Like what advice might you have to make sure that we're not leaving people out who maybe need the connection? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the most important, urgent questions right now um, as we're all not navigating this, this new normal. Um, you know, a couple of things first and just stepping back, not just to those in your community, you know, in, in, uh, well in sociology, but also in conflict resolution and in organizing and all of these different fields, there's this idea of community mapping. Sometimes it's called power mapping. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's called network mapping. And you, and you literally do it as an exercise. If you go and you, you take out a piece of paper and you just map all of the communities that you, that you belong to, that you care about, that you, that you need something from or that you want to give something to. It depends on what you're mapping. But what I would say in this conversation for anyone who's listening is almost like map out your communities of care and map out your communities of responsibility. From whom do I like want to make sure I am still getting fed and staying connected and are, are, are sources of light and restoration for me? 
And then to whom am I obligated? And if, and, and that last part, and there's, and then within any of those communities, there's different amount, there, there are different amounts of power and access and, uh, and privilege. And you can then take another color, another, you know, uh, colored pencil or marker. And if, if, if to your question to then map within those communities, who is most isolated, who is most on the edge, who in my world is most in the, on the on the, uh, you know, at high risk on any of these elements for loneliness to anything else to groceries, and then center in on those people and find two or three people that you check in with daily or weekly. Um, and, and then, then, then specifically, so part of this is creating, it's like a post-it. I mean, we are in a moment of massive interruption and right. I think it's really hard to remember everything like right. of who to check in on and who, so it's almost, you know, up to go on to the checklist manifesto, like what is your mm. checklist manifesto of responsibility for people? And who are you checking in on? And and then I think if you know for some some people listening, there you know may you may be in a you know in a very fortunate position where where the relative pain is still pretty relative is pretty still pretty minute, and so you may come to an insight after doing that mapping and make a financial donation to a food bank in your area, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways that one can help, but in and then and then very practically in terms of loneliness particularly for, for communities that just have phones. You know, I'm talking with people now who are running senior centers or thinking about aging or thinking about different populations that have less access to technology and, and really centering what can you do that is just through listening, right? What are auditory experiences? And so that could be very simply picking up the phone and calling a grandparent or calling somebody in your life and offering them to read three chapters of a book. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I also have questions around obligation. I feel like especially right now, at least for me, you know, I get these emails from a group of friends and it's like 20 people and we're going to get on a Zoom and just check in. And I'm curious (laughs) how you think people could maybe gather without that sense of obligation, right? Like that, oh, I have to do it. It's my whole family or everyone from my graduating class is getting on a phone call and I... There's a million things I'd rather be doing, including just unplugging right now. What are some ways that people can come up with events or gatherings and make them not feel like just blah? Yeah. (laughs) Because those are just so unspecific. You know, I think that's really what I'm getting at is like, how can we make these gatherings? What are we doing here? Yeah. Why are we here? Why are like, there's still that same question of why are we gathering? And what are some maybe like checkpoints that people can think through before they decide to host a, a online call or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I write a new a weekly newsletter. I've just started it in part because of this time um, about a month ago. And I wrote about this in the last one. Um, and, and, and I, I, I couched it within birthdays, which mm-hmm. is sort of the, the difference between a, can you come and, you know, comment so-and-so's birthday, uh, you know, 6 PM Saturday, whatever it is. And how do you move from what I call performative to meaningful? Mm. How do you move beyond the kind of, hey, hey, how are you? Like let pointy hats, candles on a cake, wish happy birthday, make a few jokes. I'm kind of like after a while, it's like, okay, this is sort of awkward. Right. Okay, bye, everybody. Love you. Bye. <laughs> right. Two, um, creating a gathering where even if people feel obliged to come, right? I mean, part of, part of being in a community is some amount of right. obligation. Um, there's this, I forget her as a writer and she gave a talk where she says, one element of, of, of home is where you experience restraints, which I think is like uh, res- restrictions, mm. right? So, so meaning what, so I think to make something meaningful is to actually ask, what is the need here? Um, and so for a birthday party, it could be very simply, what is that birthday person? Um, and we talk about it in the episode, what that year when you're 18 or whether you're 80 or whether you're 25 this year, what is it that you most need from your community? Mm-hmm. Is it a sense of release? Is it, um, are you trying to be distracted or are you trying to be present, right? Do you watch, do you all sync watch something together? And, and sort of, I got a, um, Instagram, I got a comment on Instagram the other day that said it was actually a birthday party. She said, we had a dinner party as a zoom call and we asked the, someone asked the question what's a place that you are longing for right now or that you travel that you would love to travel to like let's make some travel plans mm-hmm. and the and then they, that was the cent- center of the conversation at the end one of the guests said oh my god that was such a relief i forgot about life right now for a couple of hours and i don't you know and i'm not 
so so the way to make it not feel like an obligation is to make sure wherever you're in your community, this is something that people actually want to do, A, and B, give it structure around a meaning. So I'm hosting a uh, with my mother, my stepfather's 80th birthday, actually this Saturday, hmm. and we had the same issue. You know, we're all, our in-person gathering was canceled. What do we do? And we are, one of the things we're doing is we're hosting a Zoom cocktail hour, but in part because it's easier now for people to come, we invited 40 people from all parts of his life in multiple different you know cities. And to give him some structure, all we have asked is we ask him to wear wear some kind of headpiece okay. um, to make it festive. And in part because he likes it, it could be a hat, it could be a feather, you know, a feather right. boa, it could be whatever. But um, to bring us to bring a story and a wish. Mm. And it's this very simple orienting structure to actually give people something to do but also to give everybody else on a call a sense of who everyone else is. What's the nature of the bond? What's the nature of the relationship? What side of my father or stepfather or grandfather or husband don't I normally see? And I actually get to see through this person's eyes. Yeah, that's such a great idea. You're so good at this. Uh, <laughs> but it's a God. habit. Anyone can be good at this, right? right? It's like it's, practice. and It's and practice. And it's, as you're saying, seeing examples, getting ideas from other people right? Like steal these ideas. I mean, you know, use them because we are all hungry for meaning. Um, you know, my, I have a zoom call with my, I have, I'm half Indian and half white American and with my Indian family every week. Well, I would, I shouldn't say every week. So for the first time ever because of coronavirus, (laughs) it's one of the cousins and we live in five different countries, mostly in India, but in the U S in India and Hong Kong and Australia. And it's three generations of, of my mother's family. And, um, the fur, it was a novelty and somebody suggested, let's do a zoom call. And so all three generations, including my grandmother and including my children. So four generations wow. were on the zoom call. And the first one was just lovely, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was getting people on zoom. It was kind of hilarious to see people. Everybody was talking about where they were, what the situation was. It was really beautiful. Then the next week we, we should we do it again? Okay, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next week, you know, it kind of, it was, it was what the novelty kind of wore off right? and a little bit. And then we finally, one person's company actually was, was deemed essential to Corona. So we kind of finally found our way to like an interesting conversation. Mm. And then the next week, no, you know, no one said, Hey guys, we're going to meet on Sunday. (laughs) And I've actually been talking with them about, do we want to just let this be, or if we, wanted to do something to actually create this diasporic family that otherwise sees each other once every two or three years, what, how, what could we do? And my cousin came up with this idea. So we're, we're experimenting right now and we're rotating hosts. And some people are like, this is dumb. I'm exhausted. I'm homeschooling my kids. Like, stop it. I'm out, you know, I'm checked right. out. I'm not going to do this. Right. <laughs> but some people are playing our game. And a cousin of mine uh, took on like hosting as an experiment this week. And his prompt was, um, sh- we have a WhatsApp thread, share on your family thread, a photo from your wedding mm. and come with a memory of it. And, and it, it was so simple. It's such a simple idea, but actually what that does is it allows, particularly in an intergenerational call, it allows for people to hear stories from often like weddings they were, they weren't at, that they've never mm-hmm. heard before. Right. It allows people one person tells a story, but then for the rest of the family who was at that wedding, they start remembering hilarious moments of that wedding. Right. It actually becomes this very interesting tribal right. Right. But it's this very simple prompt. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I'm stealing all of this for my family because steal we've it, been having these, these things. And I know my aunt is listening and probably my mom and no offense. I love you guys, but they're getting to be tedious. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, another tip. I'm, and frankly, you know, people didn't join that call either. I mean, some people did like we're all struggling with this. And so that right. the core of this is like, why are we doing this? Which is the core of every gathering. Why are we doing this? And let's and let's not do anything out of obligation. Let's let's tr- let's do it out of need. Right. And if and it's not, I don't say gather more, I say gather better. And sometimes gathering better means gathering less often. Right. And I think also another thing that's kind of underlying this is that, again, there is an opportunity in these gatherings if done well. There, like It sounds like in your family's gathering that there's a sense of you're learning about your family members in a totally different way. And there's this sense of like, oh, I'm getting to understand this part of my grandmother or my cousin or whatever in a way that I normally wouldn't if we were face to face. Because yes. it feels like 
because life feels so frozen right now and, you know, every conversation is either what did you have for dinner or did you go on a walk today? Basically, like that's pretty right. much life right now that this is opening up kind of like another dimension, this this past dimension, if if done well, if done with intention. Well, I was just, um, I mean, speaking of books, there's a, there's a scene from um, Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies that like I keep thinking about. And have you read that? Do you remember? I've only it's read like a the few collection. of the stories. Yeah, it's, it's a collection of, you know, she um, won the Man Booker or the Pulitzer. I can't remember what she won, but she won, she, she, it was her debut, you know, book. And one of the short stories was a woman, and it's all, almost all Indian Americans living in the U.S., first generation or immigrants. And this is a Indian couple who, they were married. I think they lived in Cambridge, Mass. And they just kind of lost lost each other like they lived in the same house they went through the same routines but they kind of avoid each other yes, one I've was in one room one. the other one the other you're right <laughs> yeah. and there was this big storm and there was you know a, a, a tree fell on a, a phone line and the electricity goes out and they find one candle and they sit at the table and the, the story is basically the nature of them coming together and sitting and having the conversations that they otherwise would never have in the candlelight and then one day the the you know the van pulls up and fixes the tree the the the, the pole and the lights come back on and then they've lost each other again. And, and so we're in interstitial time right now. And I don't think actually, I think that's how that story ended. They lost each other again. But I think that there's like interruption invites the opportunity for invention. Yeah. That was my next question for you, which is how do you see us gathering again and kind of renegotiating what we've all gone through as a way to gather, because I think not only just getting together, but I think there's going to be, at least for me, I can speak fully for myself. I'm freaked out about getting back together with people. I'm scared of actually being in the same rooms with people, even small events or hugs or handshakes or, you know, larger events, concerts or sporting events, or, you know, for what you do, these conferences, so how do you, I mean, this is really just asking you to kind of speculate, but what do you see the future of getting back together looking like? And how do you, how do you think that people can go about it in a way that feels okay? Like what are some baby steps? Yeah. Cause we are going to get together again in the future. I, I certainly hope. And <laughs> at least for me, I'm such an anxious person that the thought of going to dinner is like, I want to go to a restaurant so bad, but I'm also totally freaked out about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I am too. I think that at many, many, many levels, this is a deeply cruel virus and it's cruel, not only in the way that it infects people, but it's cruel in the way that it actually um, punishes that which we most need. Right. And I think that after the, I mean, I, everything that I've been reading, I, you know, I, I was listening, I've been reading, um, David Kessler and, and listening to him on various podcasts, this expert on grief. And he said recently, you know, even if you haven't lost anybody yet, you know, what, you know, you, we are all, we are experiencing collective grief and he defines grief as, um, the marking, the marking of loss. And we are currently grieving the world that we knew. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when, um, when, when, you know, there's predictions that we will no longer shake hands yeah. anymore after this, like it, it breaks my heart. Like we actually need more healthy touch, not less. Right. Um, but, but I think that it will be incremental and I hope, I think there's an opportunity here where while we are apart, we invent ways that actually center meaning versus symbol or performance because we have to actually substitute for the loss of all that we get when we get to just physically be together right and so what i mean by that is we we obsess more about the questions we're going to ask rather than the flowers that we might put on the table right we obsess more about the type of conversation that might get unearthed to build community rather than whether ramps are in season right and I love ramps and I love food and I love a beautiful meal. And I'm not, I'm not pooping any of that, but it, but, but gathering has somehow been squished together with, with things, right? If you right. get the food, right. If you get the fish knives, right. If you get the 
table setting right, like people will take care of themselves. If you can't control the chemistry, that's literally not true, right? As a group facilitator, all that you can do is create the right conditions for people to come on their own volition for an identity or to, for a need that you've identified for a specific moment in time and to create something that didn't exist before. Right. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about the book because I kind of got sidetracked on this because it's, I'm sure I'm not alone that it's all I think about. Um, it's actually yeah. made doing the podcast a little bit harder just because I'm, I'm curious how everyone else is living in this time, but I do want to talk a little bit more, more about the book because it's fantastic and it's out in paperback now and, you know, let's give it a little love. But I'm curious <laughs> for you, what was the hardest part about writing this book? And then what from this book came easily for you? Such a great question. The hardest part for me, well, I did two things. One was trying to figure out what was obvious to me, but not obvious to other people. Mm. I would say that's probably the hardest thing because I want to always honor my reader. I want to, I believe in a deeply, at some level, equal relationship and democratic relationship. Um, one of the people I actually interviewed for a book named Dan for the book named Daniel is a, um, he's a Montessori teacher and he's, um, he's the one who does the knitting, the, the throwing the, the, the ball of thread across the room oh, that right. I, that I write about. And he talked about one, one of the reasons he loves Hillary, Hillary Mantel. Is that how you say her name? I don't know. Um, um, she's a writer and, and he says, you know, the reason I love her books is because I feel respected as a, as a reader. And um, she levels with me. And so I think, in tr so sometimes as a, as a, when I was trying to figure out like what's obvious and what's not obvious, I could sometimes skip what I think is as obvious and getting way too into the weeds of gathering. And, right. and my, my early readers would say, no, 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 no. Like you're at step five. We need step one. And mm -hmm. I think like, I actually have to say that. And it's like, yes. <laughs> and I actually... <laughs> So that was one. And then I think the second was um, how quickly to get into the ideas versus to build out the character. Like at one, my, an early draft, I had, you know, I don't know, probably 4,000 page, 4,000 words or 3,000 words written on, um, on, on Zoe, Stephanie, the, the dominatrix mm. slash lawyer I interviewed about her childhood, about her life and, you know, about all, oh, she's such a fascinating character. And then a, a, a trusted friend of mine who's an editor um, read read it and he said, like, this is fascinating, but like, I have a dinner party tonight. Like, what is what does this have to do with the dinner party? I, I don't know what I, like, how, what, what, what I want to know is what can she tell me that I can do differently in three hours and make tonight awesome. Right. And so then I went back and like actually rewrote the book. Yeah, that's a really good advice also. Okay, so... This is something that we always talk about. It's probably my favorite thing because I'm obsessed with how people do things differently. So I'm curious, what is your writing setup like? Do you have snacks? Do you have beverages? Where are you? Can you write anywhere? Or do you have to be in a specific place? Is there music playing? Can you have the TV on? Like, What is Priya's writing corner look like? Mm. Well, my I live in New York City and my life is very modular uh, in an apartment with a husband and two kids and the husband also works from home. And so one of the things I've learned to do is, is to create, uh, well, I'm also just getting a little, maybe it's too M TMI, but I'm also a child of divorce and spent a lot of time moving back and forth between homes. And so I've gotten very good at creating a little corner wherever I am. Mm. And so, so it's not like I have to be in the same, in the same spot of the same house in the same exact thing, but, but within the space that I'm in, I need, I, I write on, well, I, I type on my laptop, but actually I'm a better speaker than I am a writer. Okay. And so I wrote a lot of my book by first just recording voice memos to myself hmm. and then putting my headphones in and then typing it out and then playing with, I'm a, I'm, I'm a better, I'm, I'm a stronger like speaker. Like I, I kind of figure my ideas out through conversation right. and through, and through talking. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a decent editor. Got it. I'm not a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of have to hack around. So I, I generate it through voice memos and then I shape it through editing, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and then I always love to have a glass of water and often a jug. I drink a lot of water 
and a hot cup of tea is ideal. And and like my mother, I go back and uh, sort of reheat it or or keep filling up the tea, you know, multiple times through the day. Yeah. Is there a specific kind of tea? Um, I go through phases where I'm obsessed with one type and then I overdo it. Okay. Um, so for for a time it was uh, Tazo Earl Grey. Oh, that's my jam. And really? Yes. <laughs> so good. Like they just get the bergamot perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Um, and then I kind of, I, that was a few years actually. And then I also really like the Tazo Chai, the caffeinated version. Okay. It's, yeah. it's like the fast version. If someone's not going to sit and make chai, I, I really like that. Right now I'm having a, because it's harder to get stuff right now, I'm having an English breakfast. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but but a, a good, a good, strong black tea is, uh, is always, is always a thrill with some, with some milk in it. Yeah. You sound like me. I'm literally sitting here drinking black tea with milk right now. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. What about a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh my gosh. That's good. This is a very bizarre, but recently I've been having a mind block. I mean, this isn't a complicated word. I just wave, wave um, like, like to wave, like to wave your hand. Uh huh. <laughs> it's very yeah. bizarre. Like it's 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 not a difficult world word. It's more like there's something happening in my brain where every time I write it, I I have my 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 fingers type out w a i v e, and then I have to go delete uh-huh. the i. So I don't know. It's very bizarre. Um, maybe it's something that's going on right now because I never noticed it before. Um, that's a really good one. <laughs> I've never had wave before. That's good. Yeah, it's just like the use. And then I would say um, surprise. Surprise. Ooh. I often have to. I'm like, is there an is there an R in there? Is there an extra R in there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Not we- not complicated words. <laughs> No, it's never complicated words. That's what's always that's what's so great about this question. It's always like the most, you know, benign words that everyone ha- everyone has at least one. I have like 70, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> so you said this a few times and I, I feel like I would be remiss not to ask you this. You say, you know, you're not a writer. You're not a good writer. You're not really, you know, that's not your background. So why write a book? Whose idea was this? What made you decide I'm actually going to sit down and take on this huge endeavor? Because writing a book isn't just, you know, let me let me just throw this down. Right. Like it takes a lot of work and energy. So where did the book idea come from? So I, um, I have been a, a facilitator for, for, I've been, I've been doing actively some version of group facilitation or conflict resolution or dialogue for more than 20 years. And, um, about 10 years ago, I, people started to say like, you should really train a lot more people. You should build this up into a large organization. Mm-hmm. You know, things that other people don't, you, um, you are like a different, you, you, you're refreshing the idea of what it means to be a facilitator. What, you know, you, you give, you just all like, I, I, can you, can you, you should build up an organization around this. And I thought that sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to build an organization. I, I want to facilitate. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, my mother is an anthropologist and she's written a lot of books, uh, all academic, but, um, and my husband's a writer and, you know, and I think norms are, norms are contagious. And so I think in part because of the people who I was around, um, and I thought, I do want to get these ideas more out into the world. And I really believe like it, it, my deepest hope for this book is that it's a deeply democratic book. And it's that it's an empowering book, and it really believe lets everybody realize you don't need to be an extrovert, you don't need to, you don't need to be trained in this for years to to be able to bring people together in a meaningful way to change something. And um, and so, I started toying around with the idea that if you if I don't want to scale a business, words have power, and could I put this into a form that if it does well, a lot of people could could read and, and what I know could be transferred to them in their context, right? So not necessarily to create 10,000 more facilitators, though I think we need them, you know, blessed are the, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, But I think that this is a way of seeing the world that we are just not taught. And so I, I just figured a book just felt like something that was going to be within a lifestyle that I wanted. 
that the core of the work to me wasn't actually writing it. It was the research and getting to interview a hundred different gatherers and talking to them and learning. Like to me, the, actually the hardest part and the part I hated the most was the writing. I love the research. I love the ideas. I love the idea mapping. I even enjoyed, um, I, I actually loved the book tour because I did all of the events as experiences, but I actually, the writing was really, really, really painful, but everything around it was a complete honor to get to do. I'm glad that you've stuck out the writing because it's it's just such a lovely book to read. And I mean, we don't have to go too much into this because I know that it's, I, authors always hate when I talk about the cover, but the cover of this book is so stunningly beautiful. And the inside of the book matches that so well. Like I, it is oh, a moving experience to read the book I, I found. Um, do you know if you'll ever write another book? Do you know if you have something coming next? <laughs> we, well, I just want to honor the, the artist. The, it's, it, the cover is by Helen Yentis. Yes, um, this book is with Riverhead and she's amazing. And the original cover, I hope they don't mind me saying this was a, um, was like a table with six chairs mm-hmm. and I got, I got the image and I started crying. I mean, not, not good crying. <laughs> oh. And uh, not, it wasn't this image. It was like an, it was like a, just like a stock image of like right. a table and some chairs and I called them. I said, I don't understand. Like, where's the gorgeous Riverhead cover? And they said, mm. well, that's for our that's for our fiction covers. Like, this is a business book. And I said, give me a fiction cover. Mm. And Helen went home and she water painted over the entire weekend. And I got that beautiful image mailed to me Monday morning. So gorgeous. It, it's it's incredible. And it really does. It, it To me, it embodies what I most wanted people to think that gatherings could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, I think it is. Uh, right on. And um, to answer your other question, we are toying right now with uh, different, different uh, what this project is. So I think I, I think the I think there will be another future future struggle in me to get something on, okay. on the page. Um, and right now, right now, I really am. Um, I really am inspired by all of the ways people are cr- like create really creating and inventing new forms in this moment. And yeah. so I'm feeling inspired. I'm, you know, I also go through periods of deep sadness and, and overwhelm. And the way I navigate it is to, through my little pocket in the world, through my little lens is to see how can we still do this? How can we still find meaningful connection even while we're apart? And so that helps give me, give some lift to each day. Yeah, that's good. We all need something that feels a little bit better in these yeah, moments. Yeah. For people who love your book, what are some other books that you might recommend to them? They don't necessarily need to be about gathering, but just books that you feel like your book is in conversation with or books that you think that they might um, also enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, one is it's a it's a facilitator's facilitator's book, okay. um, but but it really it actually goes to what I said at the beginning of this call. It's called Power and Love by Adam Kahane. Um, he's a facilitator who. Um, takes this idea um, that all forces is introduced by a theologian named Paul Tillich that all group forces that all groups are defined by two forces power and love the desire for people to to self-actualize like to be an individual to be a self and love the desire for for the separate to be together to be in union and he says that group dynamics are both and that power without love is abusive, but love without power, like just togetherness without kind of a, a point or without a, mm-hmm. some, some force there are an, is anemic. Mm-hmm. And that book has really deeply helped me as a facilitator. Um, I, uh, let's see, I, I try to actually read a lot of historical books and parts. So, so I just re- recently finished These Truths by Jill Lepore that mm-hmm. actually really helps me historically understand how people gathered and how different technologies were were crucial and changed the the nature of um of group dynamics so looking at how like at the turn of the century you know presidential candidates would go and do these almost like tent revival type experiences and then the introduction of the radio and how FDR used the radio in a way that completely changed the way Americans gathered in the living room and then how Mm -hmm. television changed the way people gathered. So I like to have a historical lens. Um, I recently read Dark Money by Jane Mayer. Um, She said by Megan Toohey and Jody Mm -hmm. Cantor. I'm really interested. I try to read books that shed light more on power. Um, 
because, and so those are those, that's what's, that's what's recently been on my, on my bookshelf. Okay. Those are good. Who is a person like the coolest person that you know, that's expressed interest in your book or that's read your book? <laughs> For you. Uh, what a, what an in- my coolest, that's an interesting question. Um, oh, let's see. Um, I got an email probably a year ago from the Obama Foundation, from <sighs> the, the the head of it, and saying like we're big fans and we're thinking about um, you know this 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 is a really cool book and it's really helping us think about how we do what we're doing. That was that was neat. Um, this was more like wow. <laughs> uh, Brene Brown recently recommended it, and the, oh. just recently was interviewed. Uh, what what is she reading right right now during coronavirus time and in the Wall Street Journal, someone forwarded it to me and she said, uh, Glennon Doyle's, uh, I think it's Untamed, Untamed and Priya Parker's, yeah, Priya Parker's Art of Gathering. I was like, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I think the people that I, you know, but but the emails I most love are from young people around the world who are saying, you know, I, I always kind of intuitively did this or I was always kind of the person in my friend circle said, no, we should have more structure or no, we should do it in a certain way. Hmm. And I finally read your book and I'm like, oh my gosh, I had, I, I was doing this and now, <laughs> and now I have permission to do this. Right. Right. <laughs> um, though, you know, those giving people permission to, to, to take, to take a community by the reins in a way that's thoughtful and adds more meaning, right. To me is the most, is, is why at some level I wrote this book. Yeah, that's great. Okay, this is my last question for you, though. I feel like I could ask you a million more questions, but I'm going to be respectful of the structure of the time. Uh, (laughs) If you could have one person dead or alive read your book, who would you want it to be? Mm. You know, I actually I think that in a in a strange this might sound strange, but I actually there are people I do not want to to read this book in part because this book is a is a tool. Mm-hmm. Right. This it's a tool with a lot of power in it, which is how do you how do you gather in a way that that changes things? It's mm-hmm. and it's and it's at some level it's an agnostic tool. Like I, I'm saying, you decide the purpose, you decide the identity that you're that you're gathering around. It can be used for evil or it can be good, right? I in the in the hands of ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. They can. I don't want ISIS to create better gatherings. Right. So I'm I'm really. Um, you know, authoritarian regimes, you know, mm-hmm. could use this as a hand, as a, as a, as a handbook, right? There, there is deep power in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be used for anything. And so for me, and this is more because these are my values, I think like the progressive movement, I think when right now, if, you know, Vice President or Biden is our nominee, I think that the way to actually make people come alive and to remember what is good and what what is not just good but willing to fight for is to think about how you actually structure your gatherings, how you structure your rallies, how you reinvigorate a country. And I and frankly in a moment of corona, I think it's even more complicated. Like I think mm-hmm. one of the biggest questions of this time is how do we actually create a sense of belonging and forward motion to create structural change and more fairness in our economy when we're physically can't leave our homes. And I believe that there is a way, but we need to invent it. I don't know. I don't like to play favorites, but that might've been the best answer to that question. And we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, (laughs) That was really good. (laughs) Um, So everyone listening at home, again, this is Priya Parker. Her book is called The Art of Gathering. Priya also has a podcast called Together Apart that you guys can find anywhere you get your podcast, probably wherever you're listening to this, they have it. Priya, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. And, and you know, I really, I, I love getting people's both questions and also experiments and, and examples of how you're gathering. And so if you're listening and you have either questions or um, a future gathering that you're trying to figure out or just a gathering that you've been to that was really cool or inspiring, please write me. Um, you can find me at priyaparker.com and send me an email you can sign up for our newsletter, but we really are inspired by you all and, and, and the things, the many ways people are deciding to gather now. So please let this not be a one-way conversation. I hope to hear from you all. Ah, okay. You're going to hear from me a lot too. Just FYI. You're going <laughs> to be like, enough, please. Tracy, enough. Get a life. <laughs> well, thank I welcome you it. so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tracy. And thank you for such lovely questions. It's, it's actually, I haven't, you asked a number of questions that I haven't answered or thought about before. So it's really a treat to be with you.
Ah, that makes my day. And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you to Priya for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Ashley Garland and Michelle Modigliano for their help setting up this interview. Remember, the Stacks Book Club is reading Trust Exercise by Susan Choi in April. And we will be discussing the book next week with Brandon Taylor on April 29th. Find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirgis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>